I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and this is a very, very special edition of our Writers Live series. It's a special night tonight also at the Pratt Library here at the Central because you might have seen those lovely young ladies downstairs dressed in white. They are having their, this is the Baltimore Leadership School for Young Women, the class of 2016. They're having a stepping up ceremony and their parents are here and their caregivers and they are just so excited. And so to have those young women here and their uh, support group and the special guests tonight, I mean, really, we couldn't do any better. So we're truly honored to have tonight's guest with us. His book has received rave reviews and it allows us to see a loving portrait of his father who many of you know uh, founded the Peace Corps and also helped develop the Special Olympics. We're very excited at the Pratt Library to welcome members of the Peace Corps here today because you have been giving programs here at the library to recruit people. And we can always tell when you're here because not only is there excitement in the air, but people are leaving the room where the recruitment is happening and they're looking around the library and we can just tell that something special is going on. So thank you for being here when you come. I know there's a, I see a few people that uh, are doing that. Now, to make this even more special, I mean, really talking about stars aligning here. We have uh, a, an annex to this building, the, the central library that you're in now, the original 1933. In, in 2003, we were able to uh, build a new annex and we were asked what quote would we like to have on that building and we selected Frederick, Frederick Douglass's quote, once you learn to read you'll be forever free. Well tonight accompanying our special guests and the person who is going to introduce him is a descendant, direct descendant of Frederick Douglass and if that's not enough he's also the direct descendant of Booker T. Washington. To together. So, and now I'm gonna just get off because this is just, I feel like confetti should come out. Because to introduce our special guest is one of the library's biggest supporters. He is the president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And of course he's elevated that university and every person associated with it, especially the graduates to new levels. And we think that's why he was recently named one of the 100 most influential people in the world, Dr. Freeman Rabowski. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. By the way, Mark Shriver is not the descendant of those two people. He's not the special guest we're talking about. Kenneth, but you stand, Kenneth is a, literally the direct descendant of both those people and, and is uh, the president of the Frederick Douglass Family Foundation and is visiting me here from California. And I thought he would enjoy listening to Mark and learning more about uh, one of his forebears' towns, Baltimore. I am delighted to introduce Mark Shriver. Mark and I have known each other now for two decades. It turns out that when I was vice provost at UMBC, my boss, I was his deputy, was Adam Yamalinsky. And Adam had worked with Mr. Shriver, with Sarge Shriver, 
And uh, it was through their conversations that we learned about work that Mark was doing in Baltimore in a very courageous way. And I'd heard about this person of the Shriver family, this white guy who was the only white over living in Cherry Hill. I'll never forget this. He doesn't, doesn't remember this. And I'm saying, he's doing what? And amazingly, and this is a story about his family and the respect people have, uh, the people in that area, in Cherry Hill, if you don't know, one of the, the poorest areas in our city, all black, uh, were so proud that he was living there. And he was building this program called the Choice Program. And Adam and Todd Shriver really wanted us to get involved with Mark. And we were so impressed with what he was doing on his own, quite frankly, in building it, that we began working together. And that led to a number of successful stories called the Choice Program supported by the state and many others. And so Mark has come a long way since that time. So we worked. He actually worked at UMBC. I'm very proud to say that. And we had great times together, fighting and loving each other. And it was great. And as a result of that, I was so privileged to get to know his parents well. And they were incredible. And I'll mention that in a minute. He now serves as the senior vice president for Save the Children's U.S. programs. Uh, these programs work to ensure a fair start for all children in this country, including the nearly one-fourth who live in poverty. Mark joined the group, the Save the Children, in 2003 and developed its early childhood development program, its literacy program, and health programs for children living in impoverished and in, in rural areas. Today, these programs benefit more than 70,000 children in nearly 200 locations. Most significant, the evaluation studies show that about two-thirds of the children had major improvement after participating in the literacy program, and the percentage reading at or above grade level more than doubled from the start of the school year to the end. Uh, Mark was a member of the Maryland House of Delegates from 1994 to 2002, served as the joint, a chair of the Joint Committee on Children, Youth, and Families, and was appointed chair of the Youth uh, and Children Subcommittee of Maryland's House Ways and Means Committee. He has been known to be an advocate for children for a long time. Uh, he was repeatedly recognized as Outstanding legisla Legislator of the Year. For three years, he actually worked with us there at the university and set a strong foundation for the Choice Program, which has now helped thousands of children, first-time offenders, to move out of the juvenile justice system, all the way back to Governor Schaefer. Laney's here somewhere. And it was such support, uh, understanding what happens when you get that kind of attention going to help children. And so he has been widely covered and published in a range of national media, from the New York Times to ABC News. He has a bachelor's from Holy Cross, a master's from Harvard, has an honorary degree from both Loyola and from his alma mater, the College of the Holy Cross. He and his wife live in Bethesda, and they have three kids, Molly, Tommy, and Emma. I want to read, finally, a paragraph uh, uh, in the book that really grabbed me. I, Mark gave me the privilege of reading the book some time ago, and I was so privileged to have known, Jack and I, to have known his parents and to have seen just how decent and human they were. And I thought this paragraph says, speaks volumes about his family. He said this when thinking about when he was born and what was happening in our country. We are all born in, into a web of relationships and circumstances tragedies and opportunities. As I was coming into this world, my family lived through parades in Ireland one day and a funeral procession soon after. We never get to choose. My life in a famous and often star-crossed American clan 
would not be without its trials and disappointments. But I had as my father, a man who not only was faith-filled and disciplined, but who also insisted in large part because of his faith on the grace and joy in life. Ladies and gentlemen, a really good man, Mark Shriver. Thank you very much, Freeman, for uh, those incredibly kind words. And um, as Carla said, uh, Freeman is an absolute uh, tremendous leader, not only at UMBC, but really for the state of Maryland. And it has, as he mentioned, it's been, it was my honor to work. He didn't say it quite as clearly as I would. I worked for him. So it's nice to have your boss a number of years later say such nice things about you. He was and is a true leader in higher education. Uh, he's turned UMBC into one of the real powerhouses, not only in the state of Maryland, but really across the country. So I want to I want to thank him for coming out and spending some time with us this evening. I was very honored when I got the call from Carla to come out uh, and come to the Enoch Pratt Library. Um, Enoch Pratt Library, I always mispronounce it. Um, you know, and I called up, I come from a very competitive family, as, as Freeman alluded to, and as the book discusses. So the first thing we do in my family once you get a big honor is to call up other members of the family to make fun of it. Um, so I called up my sister Maria, who's published, you know, five or six bestsellers. I said, Maria, you're not going to believe it. Carla called me up and asked me to go to the Anna Pratt Library. I'm going to talk to some folks. And she goes, oh, yeah, she called me two weeks ago and asked me to go. And I said, well, what, do you, what do you mean she asked you to go? And she goes, well, you know, she, I'm a big star. I'm a big, uh, I've written a lot of bestsellers. She wanted me to be there to add a little sex appeal. So I, um, I, I hung up on Maria. Um, so then I decided to call my cousin Caroline Kennedy. In the same conversation, I said, Caroline, you're not going to believe it. I've been asked to come out here. And Caroline goes, oh, Carla called me up and asked me to come give that speech. Um, I'm very happy and honored to be here. I don't know if I was the first choice, the second choice, or the third choice, but I am happy to be here. And it really is, it's a homecoming for me. I not only worked at UMBC, uh, but really uh, lived in Baltimore City, down in South Baltimore for a number of years, and then up in Northeast Baltimore. Uh, my dad lived in Baltimore. They, they, he was born and raised, as, as said in the book, in Western Maryland. Uh, but he moved here when he was a young boy. He went to the cathedral school. Uh, his godfather was Cardinal Gibbons. Um, and I remember with great joy um, driving up I-95 to go watch the Orioles play on 33rd Street. And Dad used to always talk about watching the Orioles play when they were a minor league team. And I remember coming in, uh, going right on Pratt and a left on Charles. And Dad would point at the Inner Harbor and talk all about the renovations that Gov uh, Mayor Schaefer had done. And he'd take a left up Charles. He'd start talking about the Washington Monument. He'd talk about the cathedral on his left and how Henley Latrobe designed it. I can see him right now in my eyes. And how he would say, everybody in Washington, D.C. thinks that the first Washington Monument was built in D.C. The first one is built in Baltimore. And then he'd smile and weave around that and jerk us off, take a right and weave through the neighborhoods. Uh, before we got to Johns Hopkins, he'd talk about Hopkins. So it really does feel like I'm coming home. And I um, thank Carla very much for the invitation and all of you for coming. I'll just say a couple of words about the book and then open it up for questions. Um, when my dad died, a lot of people um, said to me, you know, he was a good man. And I thought it was just a nice phrase that people said to someone when their uh, father or mother died. And I realized uh, over the repetition of it that they were really taking the phrase back. It meant something different than being a great man. 
And I dove in and tried to understand that because I was struggling, as I know so many of my colleagues and maybe so many of you are, trying to balance uh, raising children, uh, dealing with aging parents, trying to deal with faith relationships and family and a commitment to our work. And when I looked at my father, what I realized that made him a good man uh, was not the creation of the Peace Corps, although it was a great achievement, or Head Start Legal Services or spreading Special Olympics around the world with my mom, but what made him a good man was the fact that he was married to the woman of his dreams uh, for 56 years. He raised five kids, all of whom love him. Uh, he uh, went to mass on a daily basis, uh, had an intense relationship with God. He had countless friends and not just big shots in Washington that were senators or presidents, uh, but the people that waited in the wake line uh, including the two waitresses that served him lunch at his favorite restaurant in D.C., uh, Reeves. Two women just waited for 40 minutes and said to me, um, simply, your father was a good man. And they turned around and walked out of the church. Uh, the guy who worked at the U.S. air counter at National Airport who told me that dad was a good man. So I realized that I needed to dig deep to find out how he balanced all of those different things in his life, a commitment to God, to his wife, to his family, uh, to his friends, uh, and doing things on a global stage. And I kept coming back as I pondered and looked at uh, the letters that he wrote me almost every day of my life, kept coming back to the three principles that the book is broken down to in the first section. It's faith, it's hope, and it's love. He went to mass every day of his life. He was born and raised in, in Western Maryland, and his godfather was Cardinal Gibbons. Um, but I think that faith was tested in uh, the Depression, his father moved the family up to New York in 29. Uh, the timing couldn't have been worse and had to declare bankruptcy a few months later. And my father went through high school, college, and law school all on scholarships. Um, he survived the Depression, and then the day after his final law school test, he enrolled in the Navy and was on um, the USS South Dakota, survived brutal combat in the South Pacific in the Battle of Guadalcanal and Santa Cruz. So that faith was tested and I think that faith and uh, his heritage of really working in the streets of Baltimore, clothing the naked, feeding the poor, uh, and sheltering the homeless, which he also did in Baltimore, was consistent throughout his life. I think his faith demanded these acts of hope. And his work in, Bal in Chicago in the 40s and 50s on civil rights issues, working with Dr. King and others to try to integrate the Catholic hospitals and the Catholic schools in that city, are all a reflection of that commitment to faith and that commitment to hope. And it happened in the Peace Corps and the creation of the Peace Corps and the creation of Head Start and legal services for the poor. Um, and when it came to love, I think um, you see it in the relationship he had with my mother. Um, some people have actually said that the best indication of his faith, hope, and love was the fact that it took him seven years to get my mother to say yes to marry him. So you see faith, hope, and love all in that courtship. Uh, but it was in his role, I think, as father and husband uh, that it all really came together. And I want to share just a couple of passages about uh, fatherhood and uh, that were awfully helpful to me as uh, I went back and read some of these notes. He would literally, um, amazingly enough, write a letter every day uh, to me. Uh, when I was in high school, he'd slip him under the door. Uh, it could be about a conversation we had at dinner the night before. It could be about an article he had read that night from you know, two or three o'clock in the morning when he would get up and read. It could be a book he had read, Elie Wiesel's book, uh, or a book by Bob Woodward or something out of the Wall Street Journal. The guy had an unbelievable, uh, voracious uh, desire to read and to, and to write. And when, we graduate, when I graduated from school, he sent those notes out uh, to me and get one or two a day. 
It was uh, truly uh, unbelievable. So I want to uh, share one. When Jeannie and I got married, we moved back home, went back to work at UMBC uh, with Freeman uh, and John Martell, my colleague who I see in the back with his wife, Jane. Um, and one day uh, he slipped a note under my door and I, I used to cut myself shaving a lot. I don't know if that's ever happened to anybody here. And I used to put toilet paper on my face to stop the bleeding. And he wrote, Dear Mark, I notice you continue to cut your face quite often while shaving. Believe me, if you use this razor, almost any shaving cream, this aftershave lotion, and this septic pencil in case you do cut your face, you will be able to dispense with all of the, quote, toilet paper applications. And your face and probably your wife will thank you. You will look and smell better. Love, Daddy. <laughs> so the point is, is that this man noticed everything. And he, when you talk to people that met him, and I still hear from people that had conversations with him, he zoned in on you as an individual. Uh, he saw you, I think, as a gift from God that day. Uh, and he, that conversation was a chance to learn about you and to talk to you and experience with you. And he noticed his son, who was newly married, walking around with toilet paper on his face. So he noticed the small things in life. But he also noticed the big things. And I just want to tell you the one story about my brother Bobby, which he told at the funeral. Uh, my brother got busted for smoking marijuana in 1970. My father and the family had just returned from France uh, as the uh, where he served as ambassador. And uh, as Bobby told it, uh, the Kennedy family at that point uh, and the Shrivers obviously were uh, you know, very much in the news. And he said, I was 16 years old and I got into serious trouble. I was arrested for smoking marijuana. I was very aware of the Kennedy family position and more than a little scared about it. Uncle Bobby had died the prior year and Uncle Jack only a few years before that. Uncle Teddy's name was everywhere. As a candidate for president in 72, I was terrified that he too would probably be shot by some madman. More than anything, as Timmy said, I wanted to be a man so I could help, but I was a boy. So I was arrested for, being, for drugs, witnessing the arrival of a thousand journalists at our door, and seeing the story on the front page of the New York Times was an enormous personal failure, a complete humiliation, public humiliation, all the obvious ways, private humiliations in a very deep way. I let my family down. I dishonored my father's name and I, my mother's name. In the house before dad arrived, the lawyers came and went. A barber came and cut all my long, cool hair. Then dad arrived and he told me to come into his room. It was a very, very long walk to his room. He sat me down on the edge of his bed, pulled up a chair, looked me right in the eye and said, listen, you're a good kid. Don't listen to anybody. I'm your father and I'm going to take care of you. Do you understand me? Yes, sir. And that was it. No moralizing, no criticizing. I went back to my room and I knew I was safe. And so it was. He went on to say, this is the story of my father saving my life, of how I always saw manliness and strength. And I just uh, I wanted to share that story with you because um, I was really taken by Bobby's use of the word manliness. And as I reflected on it, as I was writing this book, here was a guy uh, that, you know, so many men nowadays feel like if you are the head of your family and your kid gets in trouble, you got to yell at them and you got to yell at them on the sporting field. You have to tell them who the boss is. And here was a guy um, that forgave his son, right? That uh, showed unconditional love to his son, uh, that supported him through a very tough and embarrassing time. And uh, a time that really uh, was critical for his career because he was thinking of running for governor, potentially, and obviously a couple years later running for vice president with George McGovern. 
But here was a guy uh, that understood that the really important thing was his son. And he offered that uh, love to him unconditionally. And that gave that uh, boy now, my brother, who's whatever, 58, hope. Uh, and on a funner note, a couple of uh, the night before he died, I, I was thinking about how he was a role model and continues to be a role model. And I thought about how uh, my son Tommy, uh, just a few days before dad died, um, had gotten up and taken a plate from the dining room table to put it in the sink to wash it. And I remember how he learned how to do that. And it was at my father's 93rd birthday uh, that he was eating cake. And Tommy was sitting there at the table and they were eating it. And um, uh, Tommy um, had watched my father, Alzheimer's stricken and hobbled, grabbed his own cake plate after the party for his 93rd birthday, take it to the sink and clean it. That's when my son looked at me, licked the icing off his last forkful, and followed dad to the sink to put in his plate. So here was a guy that is uh, teaching an 11-year-old boy about how to be a gentleman, how to uh, clean up after yourself, uh, but has also taught me and continues to teach me, uh, even today as I read the notes that he left, that sometimes I read, sometimes I didn't read uh, closely enough, uh, how to be a good man. And I hope this little book um, helps those of us that are struggling to balance family and faith uh, friends, commitment to your work, commitment to changing, as Freeman has done, not only a university and a state, but really the world, um, to be, uh, create that balance. Uh, this man uh, showed me how to do that, and that's why I sat down to write the book. I did it really for myself, uh, but I hope it's of help uh, to all of us who are struggling to find that balance in life. So I hope you, if you get a chance to read it, uh, the guy who helped me along the process was from Maryland, uh, lived in Baltimore, uh, Greg Jordan, he's a very good writer, and he got married a couple of months before the, we finished the project. And I said to him, Greg, why did you get married? And he goes, uh, you know, I've been dating for a while, but I felt like your father was telling me uh, to make a commitment to love, and make a commitment, uh, a lifelong commitment to my girlfriend. So dad was still making friends months after he had died. So I hope you find a new friend here. And I hope you enjoy the book. Thank you very much. Okay, I, I know that Freeman, uh, we were late because it was Freeman's fault. Um, <laughs> so I can throw him under the bus because I don't work for him anymore. <laughs> no, Freeman, it was actually early. I was late. Uh, does anybody have any questions? Yes. When he was with you, he was with you. He wasn't looking for the next person. He was with you. What is it about his background as you thought about and reflected on his life that kept him so grounded in what was important about humanity? Well, I wish you had told me that story because I used a, a similar story in the book that illustrates that very point. And it was when we opened 
uh, the Choice Program office in Cherry Hill. It was a rainy day, and Governor Schaefer came down because he was incredibly supportive to the creation of the Choice Program. He made it happen, frankly. Um, and everybody, the media, everybody went over to see Governor Schaefer, my mother and me too, beelined right over. And Dad had huge admiration for Governor Schaefer, really, really respected him. And he was talking, as Freeman said, to a little kid in the neighborhood of Cherry Hill, African-American kid, about eight years old. And he stayed right on that kid. I remember looking over in the corner of my eyes, and we were all on Governor Schaefer. Uh, and he was over there chatting away, waited till the end of that conversation, and then went over and said hello to the governor. I think it was his faith, Freeman. I really believe um, that he, he saw his relationship with God as a way to include everyone, and he saw every moment um, as a gift, he, whether it was the uh, wonderful gift like creating the Peace Corps or Head Start or, or uh, legal services to, for the poor, or whether it was a gift to survive the Battle of Guadalcanal, or whether it was the gift that his father was crestfallen and crushed really by the Depression, but he lived, and he saw every chance every day as a gift. And he saw every person, whether you were president or of the UMBC or a vice provost or you were a student or an eight-year-old kid at that ceremony. And it's just an amazing thing to um, think about doing that because, you know, I live in Washington and everybody, not everybody, a lot of people in Washington look over your shoulder. They're trying to see if a senator's coming in or some big shot to, to network with. Never did that with, dad never did that. Uh, so it was a real skill, but I think it was his faith. And it was a faith that really reached out. There's a quote in here that I found in a speech he gave uh, in 1966 in which he called upon uh, Jews and Protestants and Catholics and Muslims to do our father's work. And it's our father's work is the work of uh, feeding, as I said, feeding the hungry, um, clothing the naked. Uh, he believed in uh, uh, you know, the spirit and that the spirit moved you regardless of what your religious denomination was. So it was an inclusive one. You know, so often today, people use religion and politics to isolate people, uh, to put you in a corner and to not make you part of the club or part of the group. He believed in including everyone. Yes, hi, how are you? Uh, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know, it's a good question. Um, and my father claimed he was very attractive after World War II. I get he was. The pictures. My wife has got a huge crush on him. Uh, I, you know, I think my uh, my mother was a pretty determined and driven woman. She had a lot going on. She was trying to, you know, and she did change the world. She ended up changing the world for people with developmental disabilities more than any elected official or any politician or really anybody else in the world did. And I think it was her focus on doing that. And I think. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna leave it at that. Maybe I'll write a book about her and think about that one. <laughs> yes. I've, you know, I wrote in the book, and I believe it, that I'm not trying to, you know, fill my father's uh, footsteps because I can't. I'm, I'm not worried about it. 
Um, it's not, you know, you can't do that. Um, so I think, you know, everyone can make a, a contribution in any sort of different manner, uh, in different forms. I'm doing it now, I think, through Save the Children, as Freeman talked, we're in 200 schools around the country. Um, you know, I asked him once when he had Alzheimer's, uh, you know, well into the stage of the disease, we stopped at a red light and I looked over and he seemed to, you know, be in it in the moment. And I said to him, you know, how do you feel that you, you're losing your mind? How does it make you feel? And without missing a beat, he said, I'm doing the best I can with what God's given me. And I was like, whoa. Um, and I think he did do that regardless of what he was given, whether it was a, a, a defeat in 72 or 76, whether it was the Peace Corps or Head Start. Uh, whether it was working with Martin Luther King in the 50s on uh, uh, racial integration issues. He was doing the best he could with what God gave him. And I think for me to try to not be competitive with my siblings or with his, you know, accomplishments and just kind of f focus in on doing the best I can with whatever I've been given is, is the way to go. Ratchets down the uh, stress too. You know, you can really do the best you can with what you got. Um, so do it domestically. It's been fun and, and, uh, you know, when I had the opportunity to work at UMBC uh, with Freeman and John and, and some other folks, um, it was a great opportunity, and you do the best you can at that at the, with it at that point. And I've learned that from my dad, really thinking about it. Is it I'm going to ask you, but not now, John. Okay, because uh, <laughs> I know you. Yes, ma'am. Um, how on earth did your father manage to cram so much into every day? You mentioned the notes that he wrote. You, he was presumably he just had an incredible amount of energy I mean, he really did I mean literally he would go to bed at you know 10 o'clock he'd listen to the, the Orioles game on WTOP or WBAL he'd listen to it fall asleep and then he'd get up literally at, you know midnight one o'clock read for two hours go back to sleep at three get back up at five read for an hour and then get up and go to mass. And it was terrible when you're in high school and you're trying to sneak around. And uh, you know, you look under the door and the light's on at one o'clock. Uh, and I'd, you know, I'd walk into his room at times and he'd have his head propped up on the uh, bed frame, which was a, almost a monastic piece of wood that went around there. And he had a couple pillows under there and he'd be reading a magazine or he'd be writing. And long legal pad, he write everything in longhand. And in the back of the book, he wrote me a note that I, he slipped under my door the day I graduated from high school. And he'd patter those things out. And uh, he'd read and he'd write. He just had an incredible amount of energy. My mother did too. My wife said, boy, you got, your parents have so much energy. I said, I hope I don't get it because they were like just, <laughs> just it was exhausting. Uh, you know, and he'd go 7 a.m. mass, the local church. And if he got, you know, and then he'd come back, eat breakfast, take us to school, or he'd get up, bam, and hit 7 a.m. mass in downtown D.C., and that meant he was gone at, you know, 6.15. Um, but you never got, I never got the sense that he was gone and not around. You know, he was always, he went to sporting events, he supported you, he, you know, had the conversation, and when he traveled, he'd send postcards, make phone calls. It was always a presence there. It was just a really high energy level. And I think that was, I'm going to go back to faith for a second. I think that was really spurred by his faith. I think he, again, I, I've said it once or twice, but I think he was so energized by uh, the beginning chapter. I talked about driving over the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. We were going over to the Eastern Shore early one morning. He was 40 minutes late. Uh, and I was agitated, and we were late for a rendezvous that we had set up. And 
he looked at the sun coming up and I looked at it and didn't focus. And he said, Oh my God, I can't believe that how beautiful it is. I can't wait to meet the creator who made such a beautiful sunrise. And I just think that, you know, he, he got that fired him up. It's made him excited about that day, which meant essentially sitting in a duck blind on the Eastern shore, but he was eating Snickers bars and best friends with the guides by the end of the day. Really? Yes, ma'am. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's very nice. Appreciate it. it. Sounded like an advertisement for the Shrivers. So I <laughs> think. Did did he support the Oreo? Yeah, yeah. We went we went all the time. He was a small owner when uh, uh, Mr. Williams died. The team got sold, and he was a small owner uh, of it. I mean, really small. Essentially, we got good seats. <laughs> but he loved it. And he loved going down there and eating uh, peanuts and hot dogs and everything. And the way back, or, or Carla, do you want to do you want to ask one? Thank you, though. in there because I'm, I'd love to know what the process was when he went through those seven years, how he decided that she was the one he wanted to marry and what it was I, he uh, decided. I, I, I didn't write that much about it. I'm sorry. I, the, the book is really a series of stories okay. and uh, I, I talked about it and then I, when I wrote it, I rewrote it and then I wrote it again and I was going to put in more color to it. Uh -huh. And there were chapters that I cut out, you know, his work on nuclear uh, deterrence. I didn't even put it in the book. Okay. Uh, there's whole sorts of things that he did. Um, you know, his relationship with Martin Luther King is, is like a page and a half. Mm -hmm. you could just, uh, there's a book, a guy wrote a biography on dad. Uh, it's about 580 pages. Okay. And even the, each of those were, you know, skimmed the top. Uh, the guy really lived the 20th century from, world, uh, from the Depression to World War II to the 60s, 70s, right up through the turn of the century. Uh, I do talk a little bit about it. They went from... New York to Boston, excuse me, to Chicago, to New York, to DC, to Boston before they got engaged. Oh, okay. Did he ever? Now, did you ever have a conversation with him about about why he he decided she was the one? I think he, you know, really fell in love with her right out of the shoot. She was gorgeous, and she went to mass every day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he used to say that they prayed on their, you know, honeymoon every night, but I don't know if I believe all that I don't know <laughs> this isn't being recorded is it Are we no I, I you know I don't the answer is I think they they just connected I think they really all kidding aside had a very strong faith my mother went to mass every day you know um, she didn't go to the same one he did because you know she'd get going a little later you know 730 in the morning so um, they had that really deep connection and the story I wrote in here also about a, his best friend other than my mom was a guy named Rags Richard Ragsdale, who worked, uh, started two weeks before I was born, who was a jack of all trades, drove dad everywhere. 
and Rags was from Prince George's, born in D.C., lived in Prince George's County. We lived in Montgomery County, and they went to Mass probably, you know, 10,000 times together. And they were together all the time for 45 years. And ironically and sadly, Rags got Alzheimer's just when he left working for us and died before my dad. But his best friend was a guy that barely graduated from high school, never went to college. Um, that is, he said he got his degree um, working for George Patton in the World War II. And I got uh, shrapnel in my fanny to, uh, to acknowledge it. Um, so, you know, his best friend was that kind of a guy. And uh, he was there always. Yes, ma'am. I was at the I wish you had told me that story because that, that's a good one. <laughs> Not much. experience in France was really about how my mother and father turned the U.S. Embassy into a training facility for people with developmental disabilities. Um, so there were tires around there and they actually would have um, programs where they bring in people with developmental disabilities. And, you know, I heard those stories growing up, but really when you contextualize it, France succeeding, a, as you said, a state ambassador in a Paris of all places, putting tires in the U.S. Embassy and bringing people with developmental disabilities in when people with developmental disabilities were not in the mainstream uh, as they are today. You know, they were really locked up or, you know, pushed to the side. And um, my mom and dad brought them in there. And um, that type of energy and, you know, breaking down walls of uh, misunderstanding is consistent throughout their life. And I believe that they brought in kids uh, to kiss them goodnight. Yeah, my mother had one rule. not She would never be interrupted in a business meeting unless a kid called or at dinner. The governor has joined us, Martin, uh, the governor O'Malley and I lived together in Baltimore. Um, and my father used to go listen to him play music. Claimed that he sang better than Martin, but um, <laughs> thank you very much for coming. I don't, do you want to say anything or? I'm good. Okay. Hey, Mark, thank you. Uh, thank you for all the love and all the work that you put in this book. Uh, it was great. I mean, Mark and I had um, some uh, great days and, and uh, 
time together when we were roommates up in little northeast Baltimore. But some of the times I remember very, very fondly were those times and when you kindly invited me to come along and share in your in your father's personality and his goodness. And I was just telling Carla Hayden on the way up here, I remember so distinctly when we were over at the Purple uh, Orchid, that Vietnamese restaurant, and your father saying to us, boys, what are you going to do to wake this town up? Come on. I mean, I mean, my goodness, you would have thought that we were the only things keeping the British from taking Baltimore the way the guy was going at it. But um, I, I know that uh, any book is, uh, any, the people I've spoken to have written books talk about what a, what a, what a labor it is. And I hope uh, for you this was a labor of love. And I'm, uh, in fact, I'm sure it is. And I'm really looking forward to, to reading this. I mean, your dad was uh, uh, a, a very, very good man. And I say this, as I shared with you at the time, you know, he'll become more present to you in a different way with time. And, uh, and uh, I'm really looking forward to reading this. I'm so glad you all came out to hear Mark talk about his dad. Thanks. Thank you, uh, Governor. I, uh, Governor O'Malley sent a beautiful uh, note after Dad died in the flag that uh, uh, they uh, raised over the state capitol, uh, which he loved going down to Annapolis. And it's uh, in the frame that he gave it to us, and it sits over the uh, mantelpiece in our living room with your note. So thank you. And thank you for coming. Appreciate it. Did you say your campaign was going to buy 1,000 books, too? Oh, yeah. How did that? <laughs> just have a little fun. All right. Do you want you want to, in the way back? Yes, sir. That was a joke. You don't have to feel, you don't have to feel obligated if, if you want to. <laughs> well, that would have been on my mom's side, and I, I've heard stories, but not at any great lengths and details. You have insights into it, and maybe we should talk no, afterwards. Oh, no. Oh, no. You just wanted to know. I mean, I've read the book by Doris Kearns Goodwin about the Kennedys and the Fitzgeralds, but uh, no, he was, you know, his family was from Maryland, had been here in the 1700s. His great, great, great uh, grandfather, David Shriver, and I'm missing a few greats in there, served in the Maryland uh, Constitutional Convention, uh, was a member of the state assembly, and his grandfather, who actually was 16 years old and took Jeb Stewart to the Battle of Gettysburg up in Western Maryland, um, you know, enrolled in the seminary. Uh, and became great friends with Gibbons, even though he dropped out of the seminary because he was sick. He actually went in twice. Um, so the, he was very steeped in the history of Western Maryland uh, and Baltimore. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, I can still hear him talking about Henry Trobe doing the Capitol and the Cathedral and Gibbons being buried there. And um, he was very much a Maryland family. And that's why it's real fun to be here today. He loved Baltimore. He loved the whole vibe, loved the Orioles. All right, last question, because I think I was supposed to be quiet at 7, and we've gone over, and I want to be, or maybe, or maybe one, two more, I don't know. Okay, go ahead, John. Mark, um, wow, that's loud. Those of us who had uh, the privilege of working with your dad uh, recall among his many qualities the fact that he was a perennial optimist, and he believed in the power of government. He believed that government could be the solution and wasn't the problem. And um, although I wasn't there when this happened, I remember watching as a child on t TV when he was named the head of the War of Poverty, and the reporter said, well, do you really think you can solve this with government? And he said, yes, I can. Yes, I do believe that. A and I see that same optimism in you, Mark. And it was always a lot of fun 
working to put up choice and getting a public-private partnership uh, organized and deployed effectively in the field. So my question is, to what do you attribute his hopefulness and optimism about the power of government? I think I think he believed in government as a as a force for good. I don't believe uh, the only correction I would say or the amendment I would say is that he believed in government as part of the solution. I don't think he saw it as the solution at all. He saw it, you know, providing funding and resources to get things going, uh, to make things uh, better. But he didn't see it as the solution. And, and when he created the legal services, for instance, he relied very heavily on the American Bar Association. And he, when we used to go on trips down to Florida, he'd always bring over Chesterfield Smith, who was the head of the American Bar Association, who helped him create legal services. Um, so he relied on lawyers to help make that a reality. Uh, and he did, he relied on doctors to provide a lot of the healthcare services to kids that were in Head Start. We have framed when my mom's, excuse me, when my wife's father uh, died and, and my wife's, my mother-in-law moved out of the house, they found a, 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 a letter that my father had sent Jeannie, my wife's dad, in 1965, thanking him for his work on uh, taking care of little kids in Head Start that Dr. Rip had saved. And Dr. Rip was a Rock River Republican uh, from Long Island. And he saved that letter from dad, but he listened to that call. I think what he believed is that government could be a force for good. Um, and it wasn't part, it wasn't the, the problem. And I think it was, uh, you know, his experience in seeing what FDR had done. And as he said, and I wrote in the book, you know, he was born and raised, um, you know, in Governor Ritchie's tradition of limited government, um, supporting Al Smith, that you believed in less government. Uh, but it, what he said is when there expanded the federal government in the 60s, it was because, my, you know, African-Americans were being discriminated against. The education system was terrible for poor kids, particularly minorities. And there was no legal representation for poor people. So they saw the problems and created legal services for the poor, Head Start, Job Corps for Kids for job training. Um, and those programs have, have succeeded and persevered uh, despite efforts to curtail them because they're effective. Last question. What I don't know. That's it. That's yeah. it. Oh, well, it's actually really just a quick comment. Oh, I, I got excuse uh, me. I, I was introduced to your father from a man that his brother Washington Bible Institute that was actually working for the 60s run. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, um, thank you. So we started with the idea of competition among family members. <laughs> and he ended and, it with and that. Now you just he? told me my sister's movie is better than my book. So, uh, maybe a, it might be a good time. What? Did you say you were going to buy five more books now to make me feel better? God almighty. That was terrible. Thank wow. you, though. It was very nice. I mean, it's a beautiful movie. Uh, she worked with a, 
a movie production company out of Chicago. It's a great movie. Uh, and it really does uh, tells the story beautifully. Um, and, I, and I hope you all enjoy the book. Thank you very much and for thank coming. You. Thank you. Thank you for bringing your father's spirit to the Pratt Library and back to Baltimore. Thank you. He'll be signing books.